Our text this morning comes from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. The text will also be up on the screen for you as well if you'd like to follow along. First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word. The good thing about preaching straight through books of the Bible is that you get to preach passages that you normally wouldn't preach on. The bad thing about preaching straight through books of the Bible is that you have to preach on passages that you wouldn't normally preach on. And this is definitely one of those. And it just so happens that it fell to me while Archie was away this week. <laughs> the Apostle Peter, in his second letter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, he talks about how there are some things in the Apostle Paul's writings that are hard to understand. And I think if the Apostle Paul had wanted to, he certainly could have returned the favor to Peter and said, Peter, what are you talking about? (laughs) Even the reformer Martin Luther, if you know anything about Martin Luther, he did not have trouble expressing strong opinions about things. And even Martin Luther came to this text and he said, this is a wonderful and strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. And if Martin Luther says that, then I have to say, I still don't know for sure what the apostle meant when I'm coming to this passage. Uh, But this is God's word. Uh, In fact, we were on vacation this past week in Florida, and I met up with old friends who were missionaries in France, and they're home uh, from France in Florida, so we were able to meet up with them and talk, and I was telling him that I got to preach on this passage from First Peter when I got back from vacation, and he said, actually, I just finished going through the book of First Peter at my church in France, and he didn't feel any sympathy for me because he was having to preach in French, <laughs> and he, understandably, when he preaches in a second language, has to have somebody check over his material just to make sure that it's clear, that everyone can understand. And he gave it to the lady that normally checks his materials, and she, she read over it, and she, she brought him over and said, Chris, I'm sorry, I, I have no idea what this means. And he was pretty discouraged, and she said, but if it makes you feel any better, I have no idea what the passage means either. <laughs> uh, admittedly, it's, it's a strange, obscure, difficult passage 
Uh, but just one consideration I think that will help us before we begin, and that is the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. The clarity of Scripture. And that tells us that not everything in Scripture is equally clear to everybody. And in the case of these verses, perhaps not equally clear to anybody, at least for those of us that are far removed from Peter's time and culture. But the doctrine of clarity of Scripture tells us that while not everything in Scripture is equally clear, all things necessary for salvation and for living the Christian life are abundantly clear. And so I think it's really fitting that before these pretty strange verses that we have in verse 19 and following, God gives us one of the clearest, concisest statements of the gospel message of the good news of Jesus Christ in verse 18. And I think that's a gift to us. And so we're going to start there in verse 18. And first we learn from verse 18 the context of this passage. It's strange, it's obscure, but I think we can be helped if we remember the context. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so we see that this passage, like the whole letter of 1 Peter, is about encouragement in suffering. The purpose of Peter's letter is written to encourage Christians who are suffering because of their identification with Christ, to encourage those who are being persecuted because of their faith in Christ. And when you think about suffering and persecution, at least for me, you, you regularly hear of the intense suffering and persecution of our fellow Christians around the world. So you hear of somebody like the Afghan who, who would be killed if it's found out that he's converted from Islam to Christianity. Or you read about the house churches in China that are raided by the police. Or think about Andrew Brunson, who was held in prison for trumped-up false charges for two years just for preaching the message of the gospel and of Christ. Or you think about the grief and the fear that the Christians in Sri Lanka are experiencing now after those Easter Sunday bombings. And we can readily see how Peter's encouragement and suffering and persecution would apply to them in their context. I think it can be a little harder for us to see how it applies to us in our own context who may not face that type of persecution. Archie, our pastor, on the basis of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, he often encourages us to remember those who are being persecuted as if we were there with them. And certainly, I think the primary way we do that is we remember them in prayer. But I would say another way that we remember our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted around the world, who are suffering for the sake of Christ, is remembering them by our willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ in our context, even if that may be far less intense. So you think about an author who may get passed over by a publisher because he has Christian books on his resume. You think about the medical student who is asked, how can you possibly believe that uh, the creator, the God of the Bible, is behind all of this, given all that we know? Uh, when you are mocked, when you're ridiculed by a friend or a family member because of your desire to follow Christ, that's suffering. That's persecution in a much milder, less intense way. But nonetheless, the Apostle Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. It may not be advanced placement suffering, 
as I think of it, like, like those who are suffering around the world, they're in a far more intense class than we are. But we remember them by our willingness to enroll in Suffering 101 and to suffer in the ways that God has for us in our own context. And this passage gives us encouragement to be willing to do that and to stick with that class. So where do we find that encouragement in suffering? Well, as we've already seen in this letter, to encourage us in our suffering, Peter again and again and again, he points us to the suffering of Christ himself. He did that back in chapter 2. We saw that a few weeks ago. He is exhorting his readers to endure unjust suffering patiently. Well, how are you going to have the patience to do that? Because Christ patiently endured the cross. He exhorted his readers to resist retaliation when somebody mocks you, when somebody makes fun of you, to resist paying back evil for evil. How are you going to have the power to do that? Because that's what Christ did for you. Chapter 2, verse 21 through 24. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And we see Peter does the same thing here in chapter 3. How are you going to find encouragement in suffering by seeing the suffering of Christ on your behalf? Again, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Was that an amen? Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. I'll read these verses. I think about the early church father, Augustine. Uh, as a young man, Augustine uh, set off on what he called a search for truth. And in this search for truth, he seems to have just tried absolutely everything. He went off to school when he was 17, and he did what a lot of people do when they go off to school when they're 17, and he indulged in all the pleasures of university life. At the age of 18, he took a mistress and lived with her for, for 15 years. He tried physical pleasure. He seems to have tried every religion and philosophy that was out there just jumping from one to the other. And I just found out this week, I'd never seen this before, that he actually even tried extraordinary diets. He might have fit in in our day and age with all the extraordinary fad diets that are around today. But he, he tried all these weird diets. He was even part of this group that said that it was a moral good to eat as many melons as possible. I thought that was interesting. You know, it might not be physical pleasure, it might not be philosophy, it might not be eating melons. It could be, I don't know. But all of us are on a search for truth like Augustine was. All of us are on a search for truth, but the problem is, like Augustine, we're looking for it in all the wrong places. Augustine would later realize he was searching for what he thought was the truth. But in reality, he says what I actually was doing was running away from God. I was searching for the truth, 
but in reality, I was running away from God. He writes in his confessions, great are you, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power, and of your wisdom there is no end. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. You see, he was looking for his rest in these good things, good gifts from God, but things that could not ultimately satisfy the deepest desires of his soul and his heart, and he was restless. And we do the same thing, do we not? Good gifts from God, whether they be physical pleasures or job or a career or family or whatever it may be, but they can't give that deepest rest that we're looking for. C.S. Lewis famously picked up on this. He said, uh, if, oh no, I'm doing this quote from memory, so I'm going to mess it up. But somebody can help me out. And I know you C.S. Lewis folks, if I, if I mess it up. So C.S. Lewis says, if I have a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is not that I just haven't found it yet in the world and I've just got to keep searching for truth and searching for where it is. No, the probable explanation is I was made for another world. I was made for God. And my heart's going to be restless until I find my rest in God alone. And that's the whole storyline of the Bible. You read the whole storyline of the Bible. That's what it's all about. It's about God bringing man back to himself to find our rest in him. God has made us for himself. He's made us to worship him, to enjoy him. But we've chosen to run away from God, just like Augustine did, to our own destruction. And in the whole storyline of the Bible, we see how is God going to bring us back to himself. That helps make sense of the Old Testament sacrificial system. We read that in the Old Testament, and it seems so foreign to us. It seems so, so ancient and, and bloody and, and just foreign. Like, does that really have any relevance for us today? Well, the reason God gave that was to show that man needed to be brought back to God. And how was that going to happen? Because that's the language Peter uses here, is the language of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Animals were sacrificed for sins. Our rebellion against God, our running away from him, deserves death. And so the animal was slain as a substitute for the sinner to bring him back to God. But then you read the Old Testament and you see that these sacrifices are repeated over and over and over and over again. There's even passages in the Old Testament where it's like seven or eight chapters of the same sacrifices described over and over and over again. And you're, you're, you're saying, oh my goodness, how am I going to get through this part of the Bible? It's just eight chapters of sacrifices and, and priests and clothing. And my goodness, when am I going to get to you know, the New Testament to... Jesus. <laughs> That's the point. That's the point. Something better has to come because all these sacrifices were being made and they couldn't deal with the sin problem. All these priests were interceding for the people to bring them back to God, but they couldn't go in the curtain. They couldn't approach the presence of God. It wasn't dealing with our sin problem. It wasn't bringing us back to God. And it's pointing forward to a better sacrifice and to a better priest. It's pointing us forward to Jesus himself. In chapter 1, verse 19, Peter calls Jesus Christ the Lamb without blemish or spot. The Lamb. And you see the language here in verse 18. Christ is the righteous one. He's the only one who never sinned. He's the only one who never ran away from God in all of his thoughts, in all of his 
words, in all of his deeds, in all of his desires, he was always following the will of his Father. He is the righteous one. And Christ says, you're running away from God. You've been cast away from his presence. I'm going to bring you back. How am I going to do it? I'm going to be the lamb. I'm going to be slain in your place. I'm going to be your substitute. I'm going to die on the cross to take the punishment for sin that you deserve for your rebellion against God, and I'm going to bring you all the way back. I love, there's a place in, in Hebrews, I don't remember where it is, where the writer of the Hebrews talks about how we enter in through the veil, through the curtain of Jesus' flesh. In the Old Testament, the, the temple was where you went to meet God. That's where you were brought back to God. That was the presence of God. But again, there was a, there was a veil, there was a curtain that the normal person couldn't, couldn't get in, couldn't get back to God. And the writer of the Hebrews says that Jesus, his body on the cross is torn apart and becomes a curtain that's torn so we can enter in in the presence of God, right all the way to the Holy of Holies, right into the presence of God. He brings us all the way back. And so he... Jesus restores us to what we were made to do, who we were made to be. We were made to to be in relationship with God, to worship God, to serve him, to enjoy him, to find our rest in him. And Jesus provides all of that for us on the cross. And it's when you see Christ's suffering on your behalf and what he's done for you that you're encouraged to see that God also has a purpose in your suffering as well for Christ's sake. So now that we've been brought back to God, now that we are being restored to who God has made us to be, God uses our suffering to make us more like Jesus, to make us more dependent on him, that we would rest in him alone, that we would learn to enjoy and worship him only. So we're encouraged in suffering when we see that Christ's suffering brings us to God. Secondly, we're encouraged in suffering when we see that Christ's spirit lives within you. Okay, here we go. Verse 19. There are, I think, basically three views on what these verses mean. I'm going to summarize them very briefly, just because I feel I have a responsibility to do that. Uh, And then briefly, we're going to say, you know, why does it matter? Okay, so three views on these verses. Let's read them again. So it says in the latter half of verse 18, that Christ was put to death in the flesh, that's his crucifixion, made alive in the spirit, his resurrection, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So three views on what these words mean. One view is that Christ, after his death and before his resurrection, descended into hell. That language from the Apostles' Creed, if you know that, he descended into hell. In his soul or in his spirit to preach to the human spirits who were disobedient in Noah's day. So Christ in his soul or in his spirit, descends into hell to preach to human spirits who were disobedient in Noah's day. However, I think the the language of verse 18 rules that out. If you look at verse 18, it's not talking about Christ's soul 
or spirit apart from his physical body. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to say that he was made alive in the spirit. You would just say his soul continued after he died. So it's clearly a reference not to Christ's disembodied soul or spirit. It's a reference to Christ's resurrection by the Holy Spirit. So I think that rules this view out. Often this view is offered to explain how people have a second chance to believe in Christ after they die. And we know from the, the clear teaching of Scripture that that is, doesn't fit. And it doesn't fit here either. Why would it be an encouragement to keep suffering if you're just going to get a second chance after you die to repent and believe? So I think that's not, not the best explanation of the text. The next two views, I think they're both good. You could pick one or the other. Uh, the second view understands spirits not to be human spirits, but angelic spirits. So Christ, following his resurrection, proclaims victory over the angelic spirits or the demonic powers listed down in verse 22. Angels, authorities, powers being subjected to him. So, so the spirits are not human spirits, but angels or demonic spirits that Christ is proclaiming his victory over. That's a possibility. I think the, the third view is the best understanding of the passage, and that is that Christ, before his incarnation by the Holy Spirit, preached through Noah to the rebellious people of Noah's generation. Does that make sense? It's talking about Christ, before his incarnation, by the Holy Spirit, preaching through Noah to the wicked men in Noah's day the spirits who are now in prison because of their disobedience. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11 says that the spirit of Christ was in the prophets proclaiming the message of the gospel. So something like that is happening here where the spirit of Christ is preaching through Noah to the people in Noah's day. And because they disobeyed the message, their spirit's now in prison. And I think this view also makes sense of the context because there's a parallel that he's making between Noah's day and Peter's readers. And I'm just going to read these uh, parallels quickly. These are from Wayne Grudem. So the parallels between Noah and Peter's readers. Noah and his family were a minority surrounded by hostile unbelievers, as are Peter's readers. Noah was righteous in the midst of a wicked world, Peter exhorts his readers to be righteous in the midst of wicked unbelievers. Noah witnessed boldly to those around him by believing God and building the ark. Peter encourages his readers to be good witnesses to unbelievers around them. Noah realized that judgment was soon to come upon the world. Peter reminds his readers that God's judgment is certainly coming and perhaps soon. At the time of Noah, God patiently waited for repentance from unbelievers before he brought judgment. So it is also in the situation of Peter's readers. Noah was finally saved with only a few others. Peter thus encourages his readers that though perhaps few, they too will certainly finally be saved for Christ has triumphed and all things are subjected to him. I think of it this way. I'll put it to you this way. You think about Noah building the ark. Earlier in chapter three, Peter has called his readers to Make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I'm pretty sure Noah probably had to do that while he was building the ark, if you think about it. Those of you who were here for vacation Bible school four or five years ago, 
we sang the song that's still stuck in my head. And that, that's it. Noah, where are you going to go in the middle of the desert with a giant boat? You think people didn't say that to Noah while he's in the desert and he's building this giant boat and it hasn't rained? He probably had to give a defense for the hope that was in him. He had to preach the message of repentance to the wicked generation around him. And they didn't listen. They didn't listen. And when we think about giving a defense for the hope that we have, I don't know about you, but I feel like that sometimes. I feel like this is just ridiculous. I mean, honestly, you feel like that sometimes when you're trying to defend the faith to somebody, when you're trying to tell somebody about Christ, you feel like you're building a boat in the desert. You say, what in the world am I doing? What am I even saying to this person? Is anything even getting through? And Peter's saying, be encouraged. Be encouraged. It's not up to you. Christ's spirit is within you to give you the power to proclaim that message. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, both in our words and our deeds, not in our own power, but by the power of the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Next time you feel a little ridiculous (laughs) trying to talk to someone about Jesus, it's okay. (laughs) I'm sure Noah did too. comes with the territory. Christ's spirit is at work. Be encouraged. Keep at it. Keep showing kindness. Keep telling others about Jesus and all that he's done for you. To encourage us in our suffering, Christ has given us his spirit. Next, to encourage us in our suffering, Christ has given us baptism. As if verses 19 and 20 weren't enough, we have verse 21 too. (laughs) Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It may seem a strange thing to say that God has given us baptism to encourage us. It seemed like a strange thing to me as I was preparing baptism to encourage us. How does that, how does that work? And I think that's, that's maybe because we can fall on one of two extremes when it comes to baptism. I think, on the one hand, there's the view that uh, the water in baptism means everything. And you just get the water on somebody, and the water actually affects a change in the heart. That the water actually regenerates the person. The water actually brings new life into that person in baptism. And so, it could simply become a ticket to heaven, regardless of faith or obedience to Christ. On the other hand, I think there's another error we can fall into when baptism doesn't really mean a whole lot to us at all because it's simply a sign of our commitment to Christ. And so if you realize your commitment to Christ when you first got baptized wasn't strong enough, you just, well, just get baptized again when your commitment's a little stronger. So Peter shows us a different way. He shows us that neither of those extremes is correct. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, he's making an analogy with Noah, now saves you. So is he speaking of 
baptismal regeneration? He's, is he saying that baptism saves you in the sense of bringing spiritual life, changing your heart? No, not at all. He immediately qualifies it so we don't misunderstand. He says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. So the water itself being poured on your body doesn't magically or mechanically bring cleansing of sin. Baptism doesn't automatically save anybody. And think of an analogy that helps. Think about how the Bible talks about the word of God. We say that the word of God is the power to salvation. The word of God saves you. But by that, we obviously don't mean that everybody who listens to the word of God is automatically saved, right? It's the same here. Baptism doesn't magically bring cleansing of sin, but baptism saves in the sense that baptism is a sign and seal of God's grace to us. The water is important. Baptism is important as it points to an inward spiritual reality that it represents. Look, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's important. It saves in the sense that it's pointing to a spiritual reality. What is it that saves? What baptism represents, faith in the crucified, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ brought about by the Holy Spirit that cleanses us from sin. Our baptism is is meaningful. It's meant to be an encouragement to us. How? I don't usually like to do this, but I needed help. So I put a question up from uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 167. There we go. Which says, how is our baptism to be improved by us? And, And what the question means is not that you can improve your baptism, like add something to it. It's using the word in a different sense. It just means how can our baptism be an encouragement to us? How can we use our baptism in our Christian life? First, by seriously and thankfully reflecting on what is involved in baptism. I'm sorry, start over. We have a necessary but frequently neglected obligation. I've neglected it. I've hardly even thought about it before this. Frequently neglected obligation to improve or use our baptism our whole lives particularly in times of temptation and when we are present at the baptism of others. Makes sense. How? By seriously and thankfully reflecting on what is involved in baptism, why Christ established it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed by it, and the significance of our own solemn vows when we were baptized. By being humbled when we recognize how defiled we are by sin and how far short we fall of living up to and indeed walk so contrary to the standards set by the grace of baptism and by our other spiritual commitments. So we're thankful, we're humble, we're assured. By being assured of pardon from sin and all the other blessings sealed in that sacrament. By drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized in order to keep killing our sins and becoming alive by his grace. By endeavoring to live by faith, to have our relationships defined by holiness and righteousness, as is proper for those who have given up their names to Christ, and to walk with each other in brotherly love, as is proper for those baptized by the same Spirit in the one body. Again, I'll I'll put it to you another way. (laughs) Translate. When you're tempted to sin, that's suffering, is it not? And you need encouragement in that temptation to say no. I think one of, the, one of the main ways we can remember our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering and facing persecution 
For the sake of Christ, we pray for them. I think one way we can remember them is by being willing to say no in our context. Because that hurts, doesn't it? It hurts to say no. It hurts to resist temptation to sin. When it means missing out on pleasure or missing out on popularity or not being accepted in a group. Your baptism can be an encouragement to you. I don't know. seems kind of a cool idea. Try it. (laughs) When you're tempted to sin, think, I've been baptized. Think of what the baptism did for Noah and his family. It set them apart from the unbelieving world in the ark. And so when we are baptized by faith in Jesus Christ through his resurrection, by his Holy Spirit, we're climbing into Christ. We're not part of the world anymore. And you say, I want to say yes to this because it's going to feel so good. I want to say yes to this because then these people are going to like me. And that's what I've been looking for. And your baptism tells you, you don't belong to them anymore. You've climbed into Christ. Why would you want to go there? You belong to Jesus. If we've been cleansed from sin, why would we keep living in it? Somebody try that. Let me know how it goes. (laughs) Say, I was tempted to sin this week, but I remembered my baptism. All right. Awesome. To encourage us in our suffering, God has given us the gospel. He's given us a spirit. He's given us a great sign and seal of all, of all that he's doing in baptism. And then lastly, verse 22, to encourage us in our suffering, God has exalted his son. This is the main encouragement of this passage. Verse 22, Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And the point is, just as Christ's own suffering leads to glory, just as Christ's death leads to resurrection, just as Christ's humiliation leads to exaltation, when you experience suffering, when you experience humiliation, when you experience death of saying no, of dying to yourself daily, or of others mocking you for your faith in Jesus, you know for you it's going to lead to glory. Suffering is going to lead to glory. Death's going to lead to resurrection. Humiliation is going to lead to exaltation because that's how it was for Christ. That's how it's going to be for me. So by God's grace, I challenge all of us, for Christ's sake, let's be willing to enroll in the suffering that God has for us, even if it's just suffering 101. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you accomplish your purpose in it, to bring life, to bring joy, to bring faith in Jesus, to bring repentance of sin, to bring obedience to him. So Lord, I just pray that you would use this word uh, as you would see fit uh, to encourage us to be willing to suffer for Christ's sake, whatever that may look like in our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we close.